If you'll turn with me now to Esther 5. Have you ever watched a TV show where they end the episodes in cliffhangers? That's how they get you. You know, they get you to watch the next one. Used to be a big deal if you had to wait a week or if it was a mid-season finale, several months. But in this era of Netflix, it's not that big of a deal. The next one just plays on its own. Unless you have an Apple TV like me that starts judging you. It says, are you still watching if you haven't touched your remote for three episodes? Well, we've been waiting here for a week with a cliffhanger from the end of Esther 4. So as we get here, you might remember the end of, the end of chapter 4 ended with there being a law that if you go before the king, you could die. If he doesn't extend his scepter to you, you're dead. But at the urging of his uncle, her uncle Mordecai, Queen Esther is going to go before the king. She's going to beg for his favor and ask a request for him to spare the Jewish people who the king had just issued an edict for their destruction. And so we end chapter four with Esther saying, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then with all the Jews in the city fasting for her for three days. So will she perish? Let's find out as we read together. We're only going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll read the rest as we continue on. This is Esther 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for books like Esther. God, we ask that you would help us this morning as we look at chapter 5, that your spirit would enlighten it to our hearts and our minds, and that we would know and love you and our neighbor more deeply because of it pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to recap, we're in the book of Esther. We're in chapter 5, and Esther is a true story that takes place in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, or at least the capitals in modern-day Iran. This is under the reign of King Xerxes. So if you've seen 300, it's the big tall guy with the earrings and cheek rings and all of that. So he's the king, and Esther is narrative form. And so we want to we actually cooperate with the text so there's a certain way we want to read it. And it's going to be a little bit different than the way we read books like the New Testament letters that are more logical. This one's a story, and so we have to look at it that way. And a tricky thing about jumping into the middle of Esther, like just going into chapter 5, is that the book of Esther is all one story, where the main meaning is actually found in the whole. It's like TV shows that they call serials, where it's one storyline for the whole season. And so each episode's important, but it's most important in the way that it contributes to the whole. You can think of things like 24 or Jack Ryan or any of, most of the ones with cliffhangers because it keeps you going for the next one. This is a little different than, say, First Kings we did last fall, where the whole matters, but each one, there are different sections that function a little bit more independently. These would be what we call our episodic episodes. Um, where they're standalone, you can just jump in, watch an episode, know what's going on, and be fine. These are more like your CSI or your Law and Order, where it's one and done, move on. 
those are the ones that I can watch when Allison isn't there because then she's not lost on the story. So we need to actually keep this whole story in mind, even as we look at chapter five, though. And Dan's mentioned this before, that before we actually identify with the characters of, say, Esther and Mordecai, who are the ones that we obviously want to want to connect with, that before we do that, we need to recognize that God is the hero of the book of Esther, even though he isn't mentioned. That God, through what we call providence, his preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, the way that he's orchestrating all of history and all the details of our lives, that through that he keeps his covenant promises to his people. And so in the big picture, we're not Esther or Mordecai. We're more likely to associate with an average Jew in one of the provinces somewhere. We just received an edict saying that we're going to be destroyed. And we're wondering, how is God going to save us? He promised he would keep us and protect us. How will he do that? Then once we see that that story is ultimately about God's faithfulness, then we can wrestle more with the details and get more into the nitty gritty of how God does it in this story, how he brings it about. And then we can see ourselves more with the characters. We can jump in and we can look at things that we should imitate that are good and see things that God actually continues to use in his mission to the world now through his church, us. And so one of the important things to recognize, because we see it in Esther's actions as well as our own, and Dan talked about it last week, we can't avoid this in Esther. It's God's sovereignty and his providence and that it actually doesn't remove agency from us. It doesn't violate our wills, that we're not puppets on a string, and yet God is in control. And so this is really important, and this isn't something we usually think about, that God's activity and our activity are not a zero-sum game. They don't have to equal out. So it's not if God's working, we're not working, or if we're working, God's not. It's actually God is always working, and then we're doing things as well. But are we cooperating according to his will or not is the better question for us there. So God is always at work, even when we don't see it, like we don't see his name mentioned in the book of Esther. He's always working for our good and for his glory. So with that in mind, that God is the hero and that he's bringing about the redemption of his people from this edict Now we can look at our text and we can say, well, how is God providentially bringing it about? So as we look at verses one and two, so this is right after three days of fasting and prayer. So it's not explicitly mentioned, but this fasting and prayer has a purpose. It's actually seeking God's will in it. So after these three days, we read Esther puts on her royal robes and she stands in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. You might have noticed the repetition there, even in royal and king. We see king three times there. That root is actually six times in the Hebrew, and a total of 32 times in only 14 verses here. This chapter is about kingdoms. And Dan's hit on this too, that there's wrestling back and forth on, on which one we're in. And it's a question that we have to face. What kingdom do you belong to? The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? We each have to answer that question. And we see Esther's answer today. So what Esther does going before the king is actually illegal. 
and she should be killed for it. And it just totally depends on the mood of the king. If he holds out his scepter, she's good. If not, off with her head. And this isn't an empty threat. There are paintings found that actually have Xerxes sitting there, scepter in one hand, and kind of the executioner holding an axe standing next to him. This isn't just rhetoric. This this is a dangerous place that she's living. It really is life and death. And you can imagine being Esther. (laughs) She dresses up. She goes and stands there taking her life in her hands. You can imagine the shallow breaths, heart just pounding, feeling your pulse in your fingertips. And then we come to verse 2. What's going to happen? And he sees her, and she has favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And you can just imagine the, the exhale and the relief. <laughs> She's not going to die right now. This is like being down seven points as time's expiring. Packers are about to hike the ball. You hold your breath as it happens. Hold it a little long while Aaron Rodgers holds it before throwing it 60 yards into the end zone. Receiver catches it, ties the game. You can exhale, but you still have to keep your cool because the game's not over. She doesn't die, but this is just the first step. Nothing's been done about the actual um, edict. And as Esther makes this stand, she actually gives her allegiance to the kingdom of God. She transgresses the law of Persia to stand with the people of God. And we see this shift in Esther. So if you have Disney Plus, you probably noticed on Friday that Hamilton just came out. Up to this point, Esther has been Aaron Burr. He says, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know who you're against and who you're for. That's what she's done. She's gone along with the path of least resistance. She's participated in the kingdom of Persia. But as Hamilton asked, Burr, he says, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what do you fall for? Unlike Burr, we see a change in Esther here. She actually stands for the kingdom of God and the people of God. And there's another shift in this language. From chapter 5 on, she's referred to as Queen Esther 13 times, where she's only been once before. And if you remember the first three chapters, Dan preached and he butchered Xerxes' uh, Hebrew name 18 times. <laughs> three chapters. And here, with the, with the root for king and kingdom being in this 32 times, I don't have to read his name once. For all his worldly power, he's relegated in this chapter to be a nameless king, while Esther actually is elevated to this royal status as she identifies with the kingdom of God. She actually steps into who she truly is. And so the first thing we see God use in this passage to bring about his covenant promises is the courage of Esther to stand and identify with the kingdom of God at the very risk of her life. And as we see God work this way in the book of Esther, working through her courage, knowing that she was, in fact, put here for such a time as this, we know this is true of us as well that we may not be put in such a high position to literally save God's people from destruction. But God, through his providence, has brought each of us to where we are 
right now. As Paul teaches in Acts 17, that God has determined the time and the place that we live. It's no accident. He has raised each of us up to participate in his mission for such a time as this. So we have to ask the, the question, do you have the courage to actually take that step? What Paul says there is he says that you've been put there to seek God and to reach out for him. Will you do that? Though he is not far from any one of us. Will you identify with Christ and his kingdom and not our culture and the kingdom of this world? But there is a threat for us in America. It isn't physical death, though in many parts of the world it truly is. And that's not something we need to avoid. But for us, it will mean death nonetheless. It may be social. You might get canceled. You might have family and friends that don't want to hear from you that will actively be functioning against you if you stand for the kingdom of God. It might be financial or economic. You could lose your job or your business. You could be sued. But if it's not one of those things, there still will be death. It will mean dying to the desires of this world. It will mean dying to yourself on a daily basis. You will risk it all to follow Christ and to identify with his kingdom. Christ has told us as much. He says, if anyone will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Paul told the Corinthians, and we looked at it this spring, he said, I die every day. That's the reality of the Christian life. But it's worth it. Because there's good news that the kingdom of God has a loving, good, merciful, and just king. When we couldn't enter his presence because of sin, he made a way through Jesus Christ, who actually took our sin upon himself, who gave us his own righteousness by grace, through faith, not because of anything that we've done, because of what Christ has done. And those who trust in Christ don't need to fear to enter into God's presence, into his throne room, but we're told to come boldly. Every week we have a call to worship where the king of the universe tells us, come to me, come. In that kingdom, we're not subject to fickle, ever-changing moods. We're not left guessing whether we can approach or whether or not we'll obtain his favor. We can come confidently, knowing that he loves us, that we are beloved because of his son, and that he will never reject us. And this is eternal, unlike the kingdom of Persia who is gone. So be here for all eternity. It's not like our culture where year after year and what seems like now week after week, things are changing. Values are different. One's rejected this week, one the next week. This kingdom's eternal. But even if we are killed, so be it. We never truly die. That's what Jesus tells, you, tells us in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus didn't just say that. He lived it. 
Our Savior was killed for us. But he conquered death and he rose from the grave. If you're in Christ, you share in that resurrection. And the kingdom to which you belong is eternal. And though it might be difficult now, when he returns, it will all be made right. And because we are safe in our relationship with him, the true king, that we have eternal life, we share in his resurrection, we can be courageous in this life, even at great cost. When we're talking to our friends and we know we should share Christ and we feel our pulse speed up a little bit, we start to worry about whether it'll be weird or awkward or whether they'll want to talk to us again, we can be courageous and share Christ. When we hear people gossiping or telling someone, tearing someone else down, we can be courageous and speak up. When we see injustice, we can be courageous and step in. We can do these things because of what Christ has done for us and because of our security in him. And we can do it by the power of his spirit in us, enabling us. So what does God use in his providence? He uses his people. And one of the things he uses is our courage. What else does he use? Let's continue on, verses 3 to 8. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So the king knows what Esther just risked. He knows that she must want or need something pretty desperately. And he says that he'll grant her request. What is it? Up to half of my kingdom. He doesn't mean that literally. It's something they would say. It means anything that's reasonable, I'll give it to you. You see that with Herod as well when John the baptizer is killed. So what do we expect now? We just talked about Esther's courage. So she, wouldn't we expect her to just immediately say, well, just there's been an edict against my people, save them. But that's not what she does. So we have to ask why not? Because it probably wouldn't have happened. So when the king issues a decree, it's permanent. It can't be undone. It's irrevocable. So it isn't really something within reason. Even later on, when we see the solution, the edict still stands. So what does she do? She asks that the king and Haman come to a feast. And in that culture, feasts like this were where business was done. You think of it like, like the golf course. Or on The Office, Michael Scott says, Chili's is the new golf course. It's where deals happen. It's where the business gets done. It's 
it's clear that the king is aware of this because he's at the feast. You eat the feast, and then after the feast, there's the, the banquet of wine, and that's where they're at. And then, so then he asks again. So that's recognizing that the feast wasn't the request. And she sa- he says, I'll do it for you, even to half of my kingdom. So he expresses intent to do it now twice. And then look at what Esther does in verse 7 here. It's, it's really interesting. It doesn't really come across in our English translations. The ESV has a colon, which makes it like um, verse 8 is the actual request. But that's not really how it is. It's like she starts a sentence, and there's an ellipsis, and she just stops and then changes the subject and says something else. It's almost like on The Office. You're welcome for two references within two minutes. After the Dundies, they come out of Chili's. And it's clear everyone knows that Jim loves Pam, but hasn't said anything. And, and she's, she's a little rambunctious. But then she's there with Jim, and she says, Hey, um, can I ask you something? It's really soft voice. You can tell it's sincere. It's going to be something good. And they show Jim's face, and he's just drawn in. He wants to know. And then she sees the camera. And she just says something different. You can see he wants to know so badly. Now Pam does it because she had too much to drink. But Esther does it here consciously. You can imagine the king, like Jim, this is my request and my wish. Imagine him drawing in, wanting to hear it. And then she says something different. You can tell it's intentional because the very next thing Esther does actually kind of locks him in even stronger than he is with two times of saying that he'll do it. She repeats what she said before for the feast, but changes it a little bit. So she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king, before it was to come to the feast, now it's if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then come again with Haman, and I will do as the king has said. She's making it, I'll do what you're asking by giving you my request so that you can answer it. And at that point, if he chooses to come to the next feast, he can't refuse her. Almost no matter how big of an ask it is. And he knows that and he chooses to do it. He knows that he has to or he'd lose face. And this has already happened in chapter one. He lost face because Vashti failed to appear before him when he asks, and here we have the opposite. Esther appears unbidden, and he's locked himself into doing this. And in the kingdom, all you have is face. How do you appear? So how is God providentially working to keep his promises? He uses Esther's courage, and he also uses Esther's cunning. Or if you don't like cunning, you can replace it with wisdom though the alliteration doesn't work. so. But when the potential cost is Esther's own life, she shows courage. She entrusts herself to the Lord. If I perish, I perish. When she has to navigate the realities of her own culture in the kingdom of Persia in order to accomplish her mission, she does so with wisdom and cunning. She works within the system in a winsome and winning way. It's kind of what Jesus says when he sends the apostles out. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. There's no bigger wolf than Haman, who's trying to kill God's people sitting right next to her. And he t- Jesus tells them that they're to be wise as serpents, or the NIV says shrewd as snakes. 
and innocent as doves. And she's not manipulating. He knows what's going on, but she is being shrewd about the way that she's doing it. The question is, where do we need to be cunning and wise? Winsome and convincing. Esther's about to have to be courageous again in a couple chapters when she presents her actual request. But there she's laid all of this groundwork for her appeal to be received well. She doesn't just come with the hammer and nail trying to pound it in. She drills a pilot hole, gets the screw started before she pulls the trigger to have it go. The truth is that we need both. We need the courage to stand and we need the wisdom and the, the wisdom to be cunning when we need to. But we often leave one, lean one way or another. Some of us have a tendency to courage and boldness, but less nuance, less flexibility, less patience. We'll tell the truth. We'll proclaim the gospel. We make it very clear that we belong to the kingdom of God. But sometimes in ways that make us ineffective in our mission in the world. Others of us think we're really cunning, that we're navigating our culture and our relationships for kingdom purposes. But if we're honest, when it comes down to it, we end up looking no different than the world around us. And when the time comes for us to be courageous, we sit down in fear. And like the courageous type, we can be ineffective in our mission to the world as well. We actually need both. So if you're the more courageous type, where might more cunning be required? How can you navigate relationships in ways that are more winsome? where you might be able to be heard more easily. And if you're the more cunning type, where do you need to be more courageous to step up and make clear that you do, in fact, belong to the kingdom of God? A kingdom that is vastly different than the kingdom of this world. And this starts, like I said, before Esther does this, with fasting and prayer. We need this wisdom We need to pursue the Lord in this. When we need to be wise and cunning and when we need to be courageous and take the stand. Because in his providence, God uses both our courage and our cunning to keep his promises. So what do we expect next? It should go straight to the second feast, right? That makes sense, but it doesn't. So let's see what happens next, starting in verse 9 through the end of the chapter. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Suresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king, no one but me come with the king, to the feast she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all her friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. 
Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So we've seen now how Esther functions in the kingdom of God, risking her own life for others. And now we see the other side, how the kingdom of the world functions. Focus shifts to Haman. He's the number two in Persia. He's been in our passage since verse 5, but he hasn't done anything other than come when he's called. He's the mastermind of the Jewish genocide. He hates Esther's uncle Mordecai, and he hates the people of God and is utterly opposed to them. So he leaves this feast joyful. But then he sees Mordecai, who before stood and didn't bow, Now he's sitting and he won't stand up or tremble in fear. I mean, can you imagine you just had an edict spread saying, I'm killing you. And this guy just sits there, watches you walk past. And Haman is livid. But he hides it until he gets home. Then he gathers his wife and his friends around him. And he he brags about all the stuff, all the promotions. Queen Esther invited no one but me. Then we see this change in verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's the second most powerful person in the largest empire of its time. And one guy that won't honor him, that doesn't really have any influence, makes him feel like none of it matters. It's gone like that. Isn't that what happens when our heart's idols are threatened? All the good just goes away. When you belong to the kingdom of this world, you can only find meaning, value, happiness, worth in things that are fleeting, things that you cannot control, things that actually control you. When you need everyone to respect you and there's one person that won't, it tears it all away. consumes you if this is you if you're looking for these things other than your safety and security in christ you will be let down you will see these things ripped away if you are living for the kingdom of this world turn from your sin trust in christ and what he has done come into the kingdom of god there your meaning and value will never change though we don't always experience it like we should. But you will be a beloved son or daughter of the King who created all of this world and all that's in it and that loves us and that gave his life for us who will never leave us or forsake us. Confess your sin. Believe in him and he will save you. Until he returns, we still live in this tension where we don't fully experience that. It's objectively true, but it's not what we experience all the time. I feel like we're pulled back and forth between the two kingdoms. It's what we call indwelling sin. That's still there because we haven't been glorified with Christ. That though we belong to Christ's kingdom, we live oftentimes as if we don't. And even Christians end up looking like Haman where we love other things more than God and we act like him. But by the power of God's spirit at work in us, we can do so less and less. 
So what are these things for you? The things that get under your skin, that frustrate you, that make it seem like nothing matters. That make you feel like all of the good things God has blessed you with are nothing. And you might put up a good front. People out and about don't see it. You look like you have it together. That's what Haman did. Even here with Mordecai. He pretends and then he goes home and you see his heart. What are those things for you? Confess them to God and confess them to one another. Haman actually didn't do a terrible thing with talking to his friends, but he needs friends like we should be in the church that don't say go build a gallows and kill that problem, but say you're looking to the wrong thing. You need Christ and he's there. That's what we should be. That's how we should be for each other. We all need the truth of the gospel to root this out in us. So what are those things? And when we hear people share, how can we share the gospel with them in it? And just as our episode began with a cliffhanger, it ends with another. Haman's wife and friends tell him to build this, these gallows, these wooden poles or beams, 75 feet high, and to have Mordecai impaled upon it as if Mordecai is the problem and not his own sin. And what's interesting is he follows his wife's advice just as the king follows Esther's advice, even though chapter one says that the man should be the master of the household. (laughs) Both men in this chapter are directed by their wives. So he follows his wife's advice and he has it built. And as we ended last week wondering what would happen to Esther, we now end this week wondering what will happen to Mordecai. So we've seen that God uses our courage and our cunning. But it leaves us with this question of God is providential and sovereign over all things. How will God use even Haman's cowardice for the redemption of his people?